Yeah, because, you know, I taught, uh, it's actually a fairly detailed class. I turned it. Ah, either way, it's pretty informal. Uh, but I taught a pharmacology course at UCSD Extension for a bunch. They were actually a really tough group, and they were good, but they were really into it. They were all like PhD uh, chemist or something with uh, some biotech. The that we have here is these are all bench scientists, PhD pharmacologists yeah. who have no conception of what med students know need, or need. Or yeah, 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 yeah. That's always the problem, though. Even, yeah, exactly. Okay, no problem. Just tell me one day. Hey, Dr. Langdorf. Sean North, who took the long road to becoming an emergency physician and uh, an comes to lecture to us today from USC. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Great. Uh, you have a terrific teacher here in Dr. Sushard, my good friend. So I appreciate you guys coming. And actually, one of my good friends uh, and Dr. Sushard as well, Dr. Carstairs, one of the Navy docs. So we actually did it. I did two fellowships. I did a fellowship as a PharmD in talks, and then I was the associate director of the Poison Center down in San Diego, then went to med school did emergency medicine, and then another tox fellowship, and that one I did with Dr. Carstairs, so. Uh, essentially did the same fellowship twice, right? <laughs> essentially, <laughs> so. Uh, but I want to talk a little about decontamination, okay? So I know this probably sounds a little boring, but there's a lot, actually, we don't decon that much, as you guys probably know, and you've heard Dr. Suchard talk about. And then some of the newer antidotes that you guys probably have used or should at least be aware of. Which way am I doing this? Wrong way. Okay, I'll just use this. Am I going the wrong way here? Uh, I'm definitely not a Mac user, as you can see, guys. So just what I want you to do as far as I apologize. Uh, review decontamination techniques, some of the indications for antidote administration, because there's really not all that many antidotes that we actually use. Be familiar with the proposed mechanism of actions of both the toxins and the antidotes. And think about toxicology. If you understand how the toxin works, the you know, supportive therapy we always talk about, which just sounds like, oh, put them on pressors, but if you do directed supportive therapy, you'll get a lot further and your patient will have a better outcome. And then recognize the potential adverse effects of the administration of some of these antidotes. So this was the universal antidote. This was burnt toast. So back in sort of the Middle Ages, this is what they would use. And we really haven't come all that far in decontamination and antidotes. You know, you all are emergency physicians, so you'll have you know, the mom will come in of the toddler and say, can't you guys just do the blood test and see if they took it? Or, you know, don't you have the antidote for, and you have to say to look, we don't have antidotes for most things. So as far as decontamination, activated charcoal, whole bowel irrigation, so that's go lightly. Gastric lavage, dead, right? Don't do it anymore. Epicac, dead, don't do it anymore. Dilution, in some instances, neutralization, never. 
So you can see it's really the top two that really, you know, you really need to be familiar with. So what is activated charcoal? They call it activated because it's charcoal that they steam under pressure. And that punches a lot of holes in it and it makes it very porous and that gives a tremendous amount of surface area. That surface area allows to adsorb lots and lots of different medications and other xenobiotics. So what we want to do with activated charcoal is prevent it. So if you keep it in the gut and then poop it out, it never gets a systemic circulation and hopefully they never get toxic. That's the whole basis of this. There's the famous story you probably all learned about when you're in pharmacology of this guy Francis Turi. Am I pronouncing it right? You know, he's the Jeopardy guy. Uh, but he is a French pharmacist who in front of the French Academy of Science in the mid to late 1800s took a lethal dose of strychnine, put it in charcoal, drank it, and he survived. And that was really the first dramatic use of charcoal, and that's really what kind of catapulted its use. The ideal ratio of charcoal to drug is 10 to 1. So I have this example. So if you have the Costco bottle of aspirin, it really doesn't take that much to take 100 tablets. It sounds like it's a lot, but it doesn't. Clinically, it doesn't. So you have somebody who takes 100, 325, so that's 32 grams of aspirin. That means you'd want to give them about 320 grams of charcoal. Each charcoal, if you have anyone has a bottle, it's sort of like that. So you've seen the charcoals, right? Those are like 50 or 60 grams. Think about giving someone six bottles. They're going to vomit. It's going to cause this. They just can't do it even if they wanted to. So that's what I said. Pediatrics, again, you can't give them that much. So the rule of thumb, even for adults, is one gram per kilo. So if you don't know what they took, one gram per kilo. Or save some money, just give them whatever your bottle comes. If it comes with 50 grams, give them 50 grams. If it comes with 60 grams, give them 60 grams. You really don't need to open up multiple packaging. So <clears throat> when are you going to give it? You don't really give it in most poisons. And this is kind of uh, a headache for a lot of you know, pit docs. Because they just want to know, are you guys recommending charcoal or not? That's what they used to say to me on the poison center phone, right? You guys giving charcoal or not this year? And it's like, well, in certain situations in San Diego, we were actually one of the first counties that had charcoal on the rigs. So every poisoning en route would get charcoal. And what would happen? People would vomit it all over the rigs. The guys are clean, so they stopped giving it. But they were giving it in potentially non. So if a, a low dose ibuprofen. And now someone vomits, aspirates charcoal, now they're intubated in the unit when you would have discharged them in a couple of hours, right? So really knowing when to do it. Only, ideally, it should be given within one hour of ingestion. No one makes it to the hospital in one hour of ingestion. Even if they take it in the waiting room. We had somebody last year who took uh, a tricyclic in the waiting room. By the time the guy walked up to, waited in the queue, told them he took it, seized, was put back in a bed, it was like 45 minutes before, you know, and by, so... That was the best case scenario. Someone coming from home, it's almost never going to happen. So it should be routinely employed. And only if someone takes it voluntarily. I, so I don't know if Dr. Suchard agrees with this, but I put it in front of them and say, hey, are you going to drink this or not? If they say no, fine, right? I'm not going to hold them down. I'm not going to put an NG tube. I'm not going to intubate them to give it. It's never been shown to have any mortality benefit except in one study, and that was a repeat dose uh, or multi-dose activated charcoal study, and this is in Sri Lanka, something called the Lucky Nut, which is a cardiac glycoside. That study wasn't really repeated. It was uh, done in a similar way, but the protocols were different and showed there was no mortality benefit. Single-dose activated charcoal has never been shown to have a mortality benefit. The thing that it has been shown intuitively, it makes sense to me as a pharmacist, is if you can inhibit the area under curve, i.e. how much is in the systemic circulation, you should get less toxic. But because most people in poisonings don't die, you, to the end that you need to show a mortality benefit is through the roof. 
And they're such a heterogeneous population, so just to put them all together, hey, this guy took a tricyclic, but he did take the same tricyclic as this guy who took it with aspirin and, you know, maybe an opiate and just changes all the characteristics. Relative contraindication. So if they're uptunded, particularly if they don't have airway protection, don't give it to them, okay? If they're going to seize. So this tricyclic, and actually this case that I mentioned to you, they did give the guy charcoal. He seized again, aspirated. He was in the unit for three weeks. If they didn't give it to him, we narrowed his QRS and everything else with bicarb, I probably could have discharged him the next day. So you know there is some, in, again, some risk. If they have ileus, you can form you know, charcoal briquettes in there, right? So this guy's having a barbecue in his belly. So you don't give it to him. Hydrocarbons. It doesn't really absorb hydrocarbons well, but remember, hydrocarbons, you don't really worry about someone drinking most hydrocarbons. You worry about it getting to their lungs. You distend their stomach, they vomit it, and now it gets into their lungs, right? So hydrocarbons. Cost ingestions. It's not that it doesn't absorb it that well, but the, what you want the endoscopist to take a look down there and say, hey, what's the degree of burn and where are the burns? If they go down there, they're just looking into a deep black hole because there's charcoal all over the place. Alcohols, alcohols are well absorbed and it doesn't bind them well. And then metal, so there's one metal that you might have heard about called thallium. It's a good way to kill somebody and you'll probably get away with it. But uh, m most metals don't bind, so iron poisoning and stuff like that. Please don't kill anybody with thallium. You won't get away with it. Dr. Suchard will find you, he'll find you. Uh, actually very well uh, absorbed. If someone is uh, particularly intubated, Tape their eyes, you should always do that, but if they get this in, even because it's kind of a little fine dust, they can get corneal abrasions if you were giving it through an NG tube by two meter inch. Whole bowel irrigation, the good thing about this is this whole, so it's polyethylene glycol and then the ELS is electrolyte solution. And what this does is causes none of the electrolyte shifts, so people don't get those big osmotic shifts that you do with sorbitol and other osmotic diuretics like that. The way that it works though is large effect, a mass effect. I'm sure it doesn't happen at UCI, but it happens at, it happens at SC and it happens at UCSD where you have somebody, I'm going to give them whole bowel irrigation. You get the suction, you know, the, the suction container, someone fills it up with ice, puts a straw on it and sits and tells this guy, hey, drink two liters of this an hour. I don't care if you like going Oktoberfest and drinking the giant beers. You can't drink two giant beers, uh, two liters an hour. You're not going to be able to do it. So what I often will do is I will put like a Dobhoff and put it on a kangaroo pump. And that just make it like a tube feed because there's no way that someone's going to be able to do that. And your nurses are going to get pretty tired if you tell them to take a two-me syringe, 60 cc's, and start sitting there and trying to do one to two liters an hour until clear effluent. Uh, it's not absorbed, and I mentioned about the mineral electrolyte shifts. When do we use it? So things that can kill people, right? Iron still kills a lot of kids, iron tablets. Lithium ingestions is plus and minus. I'm really not that scared of lithium, I, you know, I don't think lithium does all that much bad stuff except make people sleepy and vomit, but lithium might be one because they do have prolonged hospitalization, so if you can get it out, you know, uh, sustained release, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers. If you have a bad calcium channel blocker, no matter what any of us do, they're going to die. Those are the ones that can get away from you, so I would be really aggressive early on getting that out of there. And terracoated, so aspirin, aspirin still kills a lot of people too you can get it out there. And then body packers. I don't use it for body stuffers. So do you know what's the difference between a packer and a stuffer? Stuffer's the guy who's getting chased by the police, who sells it, who just eats what he has, poorly wrapped. Body packer's a person coming in from uh, Columbia on a plane or crossing the border who's swallowed 100 condoms. And if you get, you may see it on the KUB with just tons of them. So those people, if they rupture, they can die, particularly if it's cocaine or methamphetamine. This is the dose, one to two liters per hour, and it's just not the regular bowel prep of four liters. 
This can be for 8, 12. The most that's ever been published, I think, is 32 liters in an iron ingestion that was given. 500 mils per liter in a kid. It's very labor-intensive. The nurses aren't going to like you, so don't pull this one out of your, you know, your bag of tricks too often, but it does have a role. Complications, this is really well tolerated. Nausea and vomiting, bloating. Aspiration, rarely. So most times you can put an NG tube in and just, you know, uh, just aspirate it to listen, right? With Dobhoff's KO feed tubes, you should always get an x-ray, right? Like when you guys do when you're upstairs. Because every once in a while, someone put it into lungs and there was actually been some pediatric deaths of them killing kids by putting whole bowel and drowning them, in essence. <coughs> Gastroglobage. This is historical. You really don't need to know, but this is the old stomach pump. What the thinking is, is you can do this either by, there's devices, or just get a liter of saline, stand on a chair, let it run in, hang it down, and let it flow out to gravity, right? So the wash, stomach washing is probably is a better way of thinking of it. So when's the indications, and I'm sure Dr. Shishard gets this all the time, but people always say, you mean you would never do, get, what if it was, a, what if it was, you know, what if they just took it, or what if it was your kid, or something like that? The only time that I would ever consider gastric lavage is colchicine. Colchicine, I would say, never prescribe this in your practice. This is radiation on a pill. Cyrus Rangan, who's uh, uh, a friend of ours up in uh, L.A. as well, he's a pediatric toxicologist, was recently consulted. A 15-year-old girl got in a fight with her mom to granddad's colchicine. He was called when the kids was already having bone marrow suppression, came in and said, your daughter's going to be dead in two days. Kid was dead in two days. Colchicine's a terrible, terrible drug. Colchicine, if you take enough of it, you're dead. And I would do everything, including gastric lavage for a colchicine. Paraquat is this kind of interesting herbicide. We really don't have it too much. It's very restricted here in the U.S., but it's a very common way for you to kill yourself in the Far East. It destroys your lungs. And the interesting thing is it's worse in the presence of oxygen. So you intubate these people and leave them on room air. You don't put them on high oxygen because the higher the concentration makes it worse. And hydrofluoric acid. And with those two, paraquat, which is the liquid, and hydrofluoric acid, what I just do is just stick an NG tube down, aspirate back what I can, throw a dose of charcoal down, particularly for paraquat, because paraquat, you would give some charcoal, and then hope for the best, rather than do true lavages, okay? Epicac emesis, you can't even buy it anymore. You don't need to know about it, okay? So really don't need to know. I have here what the veterinarians use. Veterinarians use hydrogen peroxide, so don't use that, okay, because that can be, cause some problems too. <coughs> Dilution neutralization, so everybody kind of thinks that, hey, they took an acid, I took chemistry, I'm going to give them some kind of base, right, to neutralize it. Remember, nothing's for free, and you get an exothermic reaction, so you can actually cause some thermal injury if you do that. The other thing, being a pharmacist, I took tons of chemistry, and many of you probably took, uh, you had to take some chemistry, but remember in chemistry, there's signs all over the lab that says, do not add water to acid, right? You always add acid to water. That's because water's got a heavier uh, specific gravity than most acids. If you put water to acid, it can explode. If you are kind of sitting up in bed with an acid there and you dump a bunch of water down there, you can have the same thing. Remember, if it causes them to minimum vomit, if it burns on the way down, it's going to burn on the way up. So don't do any of this stuff. Now, dilution, though, if someone gets a splash to their eye, or you're at home and someone calls you and says, hey, i got a splash of something in my eye. You're a doc. What should I do? What would you tell them to do? Jump in the shower is the best thing. Just jump in the shower. Remember, you're a teenager. You could be in there for 30 minutes. Your mom's banging on the door. What the hell are you doing in there? You just tell them to look up the thing and blink a lot. It's a whole lot easier. Look, we've all got blood in our eye or vomit or pee or whatever you got in your eye. And, you know, you go to the wash station. Your scrubs are soaked. After two minutes, or I'd say, you know, I'll take my chances. You know, we all do that, right? No one stays there for 15 minutes. You know, so if they hit your door, do normal, you know, dilution with, 
saline, however you guys do it, Morgan Lens or something like that. But really, that's just, so dilution is different for like splashes and decon, but I'm talking about dilutions from ingestions. So this is a case, and these are all real cases. So this is a two-year-old male who was found unresponsive by his grandmother, right? Paramedics come, he's got a finger stick of 35, who's digging dextrose, 25. Kids, wait, <coughs> right? Comes to the ED, vitals are normal, everything else is normal. Two hours later, he's unresponsive, has a generalized seizure. Check his sugar, it's 40. Grandmother has a history of hypertension and diabetes. What is it? Sulfonylurea, right? So pretty bread and butter stuff. So sulfonylureas are still the most commonly prescribed agents for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. It's associated with hypoglycemia. Every one of you here has probably seen a case of this, right? Particularly if you are naive, as this two-year-old kid would. The onset of hypoglycemia may be delayed up to 12 hours. You'll read some case reports. They've even later than that. I don't believe them. But these are, you know, dyspolicious, right? So as soon as they hit the door, this kid's admitted. You know, we're all emergency physicians. If you can make a dyspo, this kid needs to be admitted. I, you still admit all your sulfonylureas. I don't know if you agree, but I do. I still do. Because there's been some debate, and they're probably right that they should be symptomatic within six hours. They probably should be. But, you know, are you going to take the chance with the two-year-old? I'm not. You know, you just sit them in bed. You make sure you check their finger sticks and watch them overnight. And the kid goes home tomorrow. Don't do any crazy stuff. Don't throw charcoal down. Don't do, you know, lavage. Right? Just sit the kid there. But they can have recurrent hypoglycemic episodes, as this kid did. Right? So... Second hypoglycemic episode, for me, pretty much anybody also gets admission, right? So this is how it works, and I don't know how well this shows up, but this is your sulfonylurea. And what the sulfonylurea does, it's a potassium channel blocker. When you block that, it causes depolarization. Remember, everything in the body is pretty much calcium-mediated. Calcium comes in, causes insulin vesicles to release, okay? So that's how sulfonylureas work. The very simplified way of how they work. So how are you going to treat these? Dextrose and glucagon, right? So glucagon <coughs> is good if you don't have IV access, right? That's really the only way to use it for me. The bad thing about glucagon is it causes vomiting, right? And also you need good glycogen stores because it causes glycogenolysis. So if it's a homeless guy that you can't get lines because he uses IV drugs or something like that, he might not have good enough glycogen stores. Two-year-old kid should have fairly decent glycogen stores, right? So that should be okay. But glucagon or glucose. But what happens is the body's smarter than we are. And so you give an amp of D25 to this kid or D50 in an adult, you're going to shoot someone's glucose up into the 250 to 300 range. Your body says, geez, it's hyperglycemic starts pumping out more insulin. So you have endogenous insulin release on top of this already. So you start this vicious cycle. Now this being said, this kid who's symptomatic, you gotta treat him. I'm not saying don't treat him, right? But it just to put that in your mind that you just wanna give him dextrose, and then how often are you gonna give them dextrose? Or are you gonna put them on a D10 drip or something like that? Uh, when do you stop it, right? So then, uh, this is the newer therapy, octreotide, and I don't know if you guys have used this. So this is a somatostatin analog and antagonizes insulin release, and I'll show you that diagram in one second again, but binds to these somatostatin receptors and prevents that influx of calcium. No calcium in, no insulin out, right? So that's pretty cool. Few adverse effects, you know, you'll have your pharmacist say, you know, it can cause hypertension they worry about. Maybe I don't have that up here. Nausea and vomiting, diarrhea. It's very, very well tolerated. It's extremely well tolerated. I just had a case that I gave two days ago in the emergency department of somebody who had it. So this is a very busy slide, so I apologize. But here's your sulfonylurea. It's basically, you know, a different diagram, but there's your potassium channel. This is octreotide, so it blocks this. Calcium can't get in. 
some of you guys might have ever heard about when you took something called diazoxide. You ever hear of that? It was used as two things. It was used to treat blood pressure. It was called hyperstat. And then it was also called proglycine because we used to use it for uh, sulfonylureas and things like that. It's not made anymore, but it's just funny, you know, from a historic standpoint. It used to come up on boards and stuff like that as a treatment for severe uh, hypertensive emergency. You could give diazoxide. So when do you give it? So it's just like vomiting with a head injury. Everybody gets one for free. So they get one sulf uh, you know, hypoglycemic episode for me for free where I give them dextrose. And then I watch them. Particularly if it's somebody, hey, they took an extra dose, maybe their creatinine bumped or something, they're not clearing it. If they have a second one, they get octreotide and they get admitted. Kiddos, it's a little bit different, like I said, because you're going to admit all those kids. But even with the kid, I wouldn't give them octreotide unless they had a second one, like this kid did. So what's the dose? The dose, I don't know what Dr. Suchard uses. It all day, I don't know. I'm kind of in the middle, 75, 100. It kind of depends on which way the wind's blowing. And one, two, one to two mics per kilo per kid. But you may repeat it every six to 12 hours. My experience is it's very unusual that you have to give repeat doses of this. One dose is usually enough. And you monitor them for 12 to 24 hours after the last dose. And they need to be glucose-free. That doesn't mean that you don't feed them necessarily, but you don't want the kid on a D10 drip. You shut it off, wait an hour, and say, off you go. Right? So they need to be glucose-free for 12 or 24. A lot of books will say 24. I use 12. You can give it sub-Q or you can give it IV. There are some, a couple of risks or concerns with IV that it doesn't last as long as sub-Q. Uh, maybe the hypertension is more common with uh, giving it IV. I've kind of converted to sub-Q because I've just started arguing, stopped arguing with everybody. But uh, you can give it IV if you wanted to. But sub-Q is probably what most people do. And then you probably won't see this unless you guys go to third world countries or something. But you know there's so much malaria worldwide. And quinine's still a good drug. There's not that much resistance to quinine. But quinine can cause uh, hypoglycemia by the same mechanism. So you can use this octreotide for this as well. <coughs> or if you had somebody with Russell's leg syndrome, right? You see uh, plenty of those. Okay, here's another case. 45-year-old chemistry professor with a history of depression found unresponsive on the laboratory floor. Bystander finds him, starts CPR. Paramedics intubate him in root. So there's his blood pressure. He's hypotensive, tachycardic. Sats are 100%. Comes into the ED, gets two liters of saline. BP's really not that much better, 90 over 40. Finger stick glucose is 250. There's his blood gas. pH is 701. PCO2 is 21. PO2 is 575. This is after he's intubated. And FOA2 of uh, 100%. And a very high serum lactate of 12. What is it? This one's a little more challenging. Uh, so, uh, cyanide. That's tough. You probably will never see one of these in your career. As tox guys, we don't see them all that often. But so in-service just went by, right? Because I know, yeah, we had the in-service not too long ago. But for board questions, there's going to be some of the buzzwords. And the buzzwords is this, chemistry. So if they tell you he's a chemistry professor, don't start thinking meds. Start thinking, you know, something. They're getting some chemical. And what do chemical, chemi chemists have that can kill you? Well, there's, you know, it's going to be things like, uh, you know, cyanide, and there's going to be some heavy metals or something like that. But this is classic cyanide, right? Cardiovascular collapse, very acidemic, high lactate, but normal oxygen, and we'll talk about why that is, okay? So where is it? Gas chamber. This is the old gas chamber. Horrible way to die, really. It sounds like it's a thing. Jim Jones, right? Don't drink the Kool-Aid. That was what's in the Kool-Aid. Tylenol tampering. The reason why every one of you has to, you know, when you buy something that's got all, it's all sealed up now, is because of the Tylenol tampering scare in 1981 in Chicago. Someone put, there used to be capsules that you could open up and then you put it back on the shelf and that someone did. That person was never caught. There was a copycat a couple of years ago, some guy who killed his wife and tried to get away with uh, killing a bunch of other people. You know, he just wanted to kill his wife and, hey, if I take out a couple other people, it's a big deal. Uh, 
But so he got caught. Cyanogenic plants. So again, if any of you guys go over to Africa, there's some called uh, cassava, which is like the root vegetable that they use. Homicide, it's a very common way for someone to kill. And if you want to get Granny's house, and I'm not telling you how to kill people, please. I know I keep bringing it up. But if you want to kill Granny and get her house, and she's 90 and someone finds her dead in the morning, no one's going to be looking. The, the coroner's not going to be looking for this, right? So it's just scary because this happens probably a lot more than that's the point I'm making, not to tell you how to kill your grandma. Artificial nail remover, not artificial uh, nail polish, not nail polish remover. This is something. Nitroprusside, right? We don't use it that much anymore. It's kind of a drug that's not used that much. But the big concern was cyanide. And when I was a pharmacist, we used to put sodium thiosulfate, one of the treatments for cyanide, in there because if they make something called thiocyanate, nitroprusside doesn't work so well. There is some toxicity associated, but it doesn't kill them, right? And then smoke inhalation, right? If these cushions that you're sitting on, right, structural fires, you guys, it's like everybody bangs into your head now, not only think about carbon monoxide, but if someone comes in and you're resuscitating them and they're still very acidemic, think about cyanide. So how do they present? Abrupt onset. There's very few toxins that make you standing, walking, talking, and drop. There's very few that in seconds you will drop. This is one. Altered mental status before they get sick. They could say headache, confusion, seizures, coma, dyspnea, hypertension followed by profound hypotension, cardiovascular collapse, lactate, very high lactates, high venous oxygen saturation. So it's called arterialization of the venous blood. So your nurse or you were starting an IV uh, or you put in a central line and you're looking and say, geez, this looks like arterial, you know, but it's not pulsatile. That's because you can't utilize the oxygen. And so the oxygen, there's plenty of oxygen, you just can't utilize it may be delayed in nitrile, so that's what's in that artificial nail remover or the cyanogenic plant ingestions. Uh, most important uh, oxidative phosphorylation. Actually, it just made me think, because uh, Dr. Suchard pu published a case of a woman, apricot pits. So apricot pits, you ever, you know, people will tell you, don't eat apple seeds, that's called a prune species, and then there's other kind of malice species and things like that that have apricots. So apricot pits actually have some called laetril. You've heard of laetril, it's like one of these uh, quasi- treatments down in Mexico for, uh, but he had a case of some woman who got cyanide poisoning from eating apricot pits. And you can buy them in GNC, you know, you can buy them. Actually, as uh, a little lab that we had earlier in the month, uh, had a handful of them out there, and everybody can taste them. Yeah, you probably have to eat a lot to, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't worry about eating, you know, people aren't dropping dead, they eat them every day, but this person apparently ate a lot. <clears throat> so how does this work? This arrests all, uh, so where you hear aspirin is an uncoupler of oxidative phosphorylation, <laughs> this is a little bit different. This just inhibits a cytochrome, it's called AA3 on the mitochondria. You can't utilize oxygen anymore. You have plenty of oxygen, you can't utilize it. So you go from one minute you're aerobic immediately to anaerobic. And that's why they get this profound lactic acidosis, right? As you would expect, organs with the highest oxygen demand brain, heart, get hit the hardest, and they get hit first. Standard therapy, and you probably still need to know this for the emergency medicine boards, it's called the Lilly Antidote Kit. It's not made by Lilly anymore, but it's amyl nitrite, sodium nitrite, and what those two do is nitrites are oxidizers, and they cause methemoglobinemia. What methemoglobinemia does, even though it's impairing your ability to oxygenate, Cyanide has a preference for the ferric iron of methemoglobin over the ferric that's on that cytochrome AA3. 
So it preferentially binds and made some called cyanomethemoglobin. I'll show you a picture of this. The side effect, remember, nitrites, nitrates, nitrates are nitroglycerin, all cause hypotension. So that's the side effect of this. The real therapy probably is a sodium thiosulfate. And this is a sulfur donor, and it works through this enzyme called rhodonese. And this makes that thiocyanate that I mentioned earlier that's relatively non-toxic, excreted in the urine. Hypersensitivity, because people can be allergic to the sulfur component of it, and hypotension. So hypotension is a problem, particularly cyanide can cause profound hypotension. So here's cyanide. Cyanide binds here to your AA3, that blocks your oxygen. Here's your nitrites causing methemoglobinemia cyanomethemoglobinemia, rhodonese, thiosulfate, thiocyanate, gets peed out in the urine. That's how the old therapy works. Hydroxocobalamin is the newer drug. It's been around in France and Europe for a while, but for us it was just approved a few years back. Completely different mechanism. It's a B12 precursor. So remember, all your vitamin B12s are water-soluble, and even in mega-mega doses are very, very safe. So it's very safe. So hydroxycobalamin in the presence of cyanide makes cyanocobalamin, which is vitamin B12. And cyanide prefers the hydroxycobalamin. Remember, cobalt is a metal, and cyanide loves metals. That's why they use it for extracting gold and things like that in different kind of chemical processes. So cyanocobalamin, you can see it's a big, and uh, hydroxycobalamin, these are big structures. But it just forms this, and that's non-toxic, right? It just gets excreted out in the urine. So what's the dose? Five grams. This is massive, massive doses. If you think about how much you get, or, you know, West L.A. at uh, Cedars, when they come in for their weekly B12 injections, they get about 100 micrograms that they get, or 50 mics that they get, or milligrams, rather, uh, that they get of that. So you'd have to give 50 of those little vials to get this dose. So commercially now they make it. It comes in the sun. I'll show you a picture of it. And then if that doesn't work, you give it over 15 minutes, you can give an additional 2.5 grams or 70 milligram per kilo in children. So it costs about 900 bucks. You know, that's just acquisition costs. So this company wants every EMS rig in the country to carry this. Because they're arguing, they're gonna sell it to you guys, saying, hey, you know all these structural fires, you guys have all these people who are dying from cyanide poisoning, you're not identifying it. If we can give it to them in the rig when they're on, you know, or just we can walk in and give it to you, it has a shelf life of about two years, and they won't take it back if it expires. Think about every rig in Orange County, let alone every rig in L.A. County, if you had $900 rolling around in there, $1,000 per rig that's probably never going to be used, or if it's used, it's going to be overused, and when it expires, so this is ridiculous. In their initial submission to the FDA, the company wanted it to be labeled as an indication anybody who passes out <coughs> at the site of a fire. Yeah. I can imagine that the number of MIs in front of <laughs> probably exceeds the number of cyanide poisoning yeah, so this is a, so it's pretty well tolerated, but there are some important things you need to know if you're going to use this. So it can cause transient hypertension, but usually that is actually a benefit for us in a severely poisoned patient. But the next line is really important. It interferes with tons of lab tests. So you can't get a creatinine on this person, or you can't interpret it. You can't interpret their AST. You can't interpret their bilirubin. You can't interpret their CK. So, hey, was this person laying down, you know, for a long time in this fire, and now do they have rhabdo? I don't know. You can't check a carboxyhemoglobin. That might be important, <laughs> right, if you are a believer in HBO or not, or at least start treating them for it. Methemoglobinemia. You can't check it that because it interferes with the assay. And then just looking at your uh, oxyhemoglobin. 
So the recommendation is if you're thinking about doing this, and I just went through our antidote list yesterday with our emergency pharmacist, and I said draw a rainbow, any tube that you can find, draw it before you push this thing. Because once you push it, it's going to be days before you can interpret this, okay? Causes red urine, reddening of the skin. Really not a big deal, but it is. Uh, so what it looks like, kind of looks like fake blood. And that's, a, you know, the bottle is kind of an average size, you know, decent sized bottle. And this is a patient who got it. It doesn't project as well as it does on, I don't know if I can rotate this screen for you guys. Uh, but you see how red her skin is. So it's just one of these interesting things, really not that that big a deal. This is actually some friends of ours, uh, Vic Babarda, who's an Air Force uh, guy down at uh, Sam Houston, who is a toxicologist, and then Dave Tannen, who's a Navy guy in San Diego that we both know pretty well. This they published in Annals of Emergency Medicine, and they did exactly, so they did this study the exact way that I would have done it, and I think Dr. Suchard would. Because if I had somebody that was really cyanide that I'm worried about, I'm not giving them the first kit or just the hydroxycobalamin. I'm going to give them the sodium thiosulfate because I think that's what really works in the first kit, not the other stuff. And I'm going to give them hydroxycobalamin. So they did exactly that. They did hydroxycobalamin and sodium thiosulfate versus sodium nitrite, sodium, the, kind of the old treatment, if you will. And they showed that there was a, bene you know, there was a mortality benefit with the hydroxycobalamin. <coughs> and their parameters really, where their benefit was really in looking at hemodynamic parameters, that was the big criticism of the editorial of this paper, but, you know, it, it's, it still was, I think, a pretty good paper. And I think it won best paper at SAEM that year that they presented it. This is another case. So this is a 73-year-old female who took an unknown medication in a suicide attempt. She's found by her daughter. She's obtunded. She's got cool extremities. Uh, sorry, just looking at the time here. Uh, Paramex arrived. She's very bradycardic, very hypotensive. Breathing, sats are okay. Elevated finger sick glucose, 350, right? She's given one liter fluid, given some atropine, no response, and then she's got third degree heart block with a rate of 32. So what is this? And why? And why is it calcium channel blocker? Hyperglycemia, right? So very good, excellent, excellent. So that's a way that you can kind of differentiate these a little bit. So calcium channel blockers are exactly that. So there's this L type, it's called a voltage gated calcium channel, and it just blocks that. And so you can't get all the myosin kinase to kind of cause contraction, you know, so just not to bore you with all that stuff. The way that beta blockers work is a little bit different, and I have to remind myself of this slide. So this is, uh, oh, yeah, calcium-mediated, that's what I want to say. Calcium-mediated uh, insulin release. So this goes back to our sulfonylurea. So why does calcium channel blockers cause hyperglycemia? Is because that calcium channel is still, it's an L-type calcium channel, the same one that affects the sulfonylureas and you induce an insulin resistance, right? So it's actually interesting. And from board questions, because I know some of the people who write in board questions, exactly, pick up on that thing. So if you get somebody who presents with us with hyperglycemia, they're, they're sending you down that calcium channel blocker pathway, okay? Have you guys ever tried this therapy or heard about this? In fact, I had a case yesterday. I was coming in at 3 o'clock at County, and the guy that I was relieving called me because I was on call for talks yesterday. And he said, oh, I got this guy who came in. He was on a beta blocker and calcium channel blocker. And his, one of his, like his cardiologist had stopped it. He went to his primary. His primary didn't know that he had stopped the beta blocker. So he just refilled all his meds. Guy took it and came in, you know, like completely third degree block. Kind of a similar type scenario. So I called. So he called me and had already given him some glucagon and he'd given him some calcium. And the guy was, and put him on dopamine. I said, well, you know, if he, he sounds like he was holding his own, but I said, hey, if he gets sick again, you can give him this high-dose insulin. 
and people think you're insane. They think you're going to kill people because the dose is one unit per kilo. And they say, excuse me, you mean 0.1? I said, no, no, <laughs> one unit per kilo. So how does this work? So remember, the heart's normal preferred substrate is free fatty acids. That's what it likes to use. In periods of stress, it switches to carbohydrate. And it needs insulin to use that, right? So your brain doesn't need insulin, but your heart does need insulin for it to get into the cells. And then so when you have this going on, you have decreased function, and as you're hyperperfusing your heart, you have decreased delivery of insulin and glucose to the heart, so its preferred substrate isn't getting there. And then you also have this induced insulin resistance. So you have this whole cascade of stuff going on that's all detrimental to the heart. So how does it have work in both calcium channel blockers and beta blockers? Insulin by itself improves myocardial carbon metabolism. That makes sense. We just said that. It also increases plasma ionized calcium, and it has an independent inotropic effect. So the guys who came up with this, one guy's now in San Diego, his name's Chris Tomaszewski. He's a tox guy and an HBO guy. The other guy is Jeff Klein that everybody knows from pulmonary embolism, right? You all know Jeff Klein? Well, Jeff Klein and Chris came up with this idea, and Chris actually got the idea. He was down in Argentina, in Argentina. his parents are from Argentina. And speaking to some cardiologists there who just started saying, hey, you know what? We used to use really high-dose insulin post-MI because it has all these beneficial cardiac effects without any meds. And then so they started thinking about this and started reading into some of the older literature and found that it had all these kind of beneficial effects and increases lactate uptake and pruvage formation, which ultimately ideally makes more ATP. I mentioned the dose to you, and people, we have a faxable protocol at the poison center because people really think, they just say, thank you, I'm going to call, you know, the Phoenix Poison Center because you guys are, you don't know what you're talking about. So it's one unit per kilo, and then you put them on 0.5 to one unit per kilo an hour. So it's pretty scary, and until you've done it a couple of times, you know, uh, you do get a little scary. Uh, you get a little scared with that. Moderated serum glucose, Q15, or yeah, it's Q30. In the beginning, I usually check it like Q15. But the good thing about uh, calcium channel blockers, and this is just my anecdotal experience, but once they start getting hypoglycemic, the toxin's usually over. You know, they, they're getting better. And that makes sense because that induced insulin resistance going away because they're metabolizing the drug. And a lot of people, particularly if it's not their drug, that they took someone else who's trying to kill themselves, all you need to do is support them until their body does what it needs to do, i.e., metabolize the drug. If it's an older person who's got a lot of comorbidities, you know, the, the cards are stacked against you. But you want to keep them kind of normal to high glucose with that. So the latest news, and this is the last topic that we'll do, intravenous fat emulsion. And you, yeah. So it all depends what I'm treating. So I didn't go too much into beta blockers. But so beta blockers classically, and again, coming back to board type questions, the beta blocker is going to be hypoglycemia. Now, hypoglycemia from beta blockers is usually in pediatric patients. Adults can be hypoglycemic, but often they are euglycemic. But, you know, so a board type question, that's what they're going to say. So if they're already hypoglycemic, I'm going to give them some dextrose before I do it. Uh, you can look at those protocols. You can hang a little D10. But often with a calcium channel blocker, you don't have to do it. But I do follow their glucose fairly closely for that first hour or so. And then once I feel that they're kind of on autopilot, I have dextrose at the bedside. I'll have everybody that I'm speaking to, hey, get ready to hang some D10 if we do. But uh, as high as those doses are, people tolerate it very, very well. But I wouldn't do that high-dose insulin or intravenous fat emulsion on your own. I would get your toxicologist locally, or if you don't have a toxicologist, call your poison center. Because, if, excuse me, I think if you're not familiar or very familiar with this stuff, 
you know, you can get yourself into some trouble and you'd want some, somebody to help guide you through because this is, you're not going to be doing these therapies all that often. But intravenous fat emulsion, this is the same stuff that when you're up in the unit and you're giving somebody intralipid, right, for their nutrition, and that's what it is. So it has kind of been stumbled on. There's an a, a anesthesiologist named Guy Weinberg in Chicago, and he was doing some research on long-acting anesthetics and just kind of stumbled onto this fat emulsion and found that in bupivacaine poisoning, which causes severe cardiotoxicity, I mean, seizures is something we always learn about, right, with lidocaine uh, and stuff like that. But in long-acting anesthetics, particularly if they're using it for uh, pregnancy or something like that, and these people get uh, bupivacaine toxic, they have cardiovascular, you know, go into uh, dysrhythmia and collapse and can die. So he came across it and found that it is dramatic for anesthetic, long-acting anesthetic toxicity. In fact, you could say that's the preferred substrate for intravenous uh, fat emulsion. But then, of course, we started hearing about toxicology and people started saying, hey, we should look at this, particularly for all the things that you'd expect us to look at for. Beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, tricyclics, things that can really, you know, kill people and are hard to treat. So what is it? It's triglycerides, uh, phospholipids from soybean and egg, and it's a 20% uh, solution that's most commonly used. Here is his website. This is on four, what is that space? Yeah, four, uh, uh, squarespace.com. So he has this thing. It's more like a blog where you can look, and it's called Leopard, Leopard Rescue. And it tells you about his thing, Guy's blog. That's uh, Guy Weinberg. You can upload your case. He tells you he's got a protocol in here, and he tells you how to do it because he's kind of made this his passion. He's almost a little bit over the top with how much he believes in this stuff. But I definitely think that there is a role, and it's probably the most exciting thing that's happened in toxicology in the past, you know, 20 years is this stuff. So here is probably the first, well, this is the first emergency medicine case report, and the one that everybody refers to for Mantles of Emergency Medicine. It's bupropion and lamotrigine that was getting resuscitated, refractory to pretty much everything, and then they gave them this bolus dose of intralipid. The problem with being, uh, with with these types of case reports and being a reviewer for many journals is people always say, oh, it's the last thing I gave that worked. But they were all the way down their ACLS. So how do you know it wasn't the epi that kicked in? How do you know it wasn't this or that? But anyway, this is the one that kind of sparked the, the discussion saying, hey, maybe it's it. I'm not saying I don't believe that interlipid works, but you just have to be careful. Just when you get your patient back, everybody always says, oh, it was the bicarb I gave them or it was, you know, but they've given them 50 rounds of different drugs at, by that time. So this is actually a very nice model. This is down in Australia. These guys do this intralipid that outperforms sodium bicarbonate in this rabbit model of clomipramine, which is another tricyclic, and showed that this uh, did uh, quite well. And this is from Annals of Emergency Medicine, too. But I really like their model that they use, and they use this model and other things. So this is how it looks, kind of the milky stuff. It kind of looks like propofol. So a lot of people say, why don't I just put somebody on propofol drip? And I get the best of both worlds. Because the amount of intralipid that you would need to give to propofol is a hundredfold the dose, and you would kill them. You'd Michael Jackson them, and don't do that. <laughs> uh, so that is the problem with it, with you can't use propofol. But people look at it and say, it's white, it's milky, this other stuff, right? So how does it work? This is how I think it works, is a lipid sink. Because if you look at the pharmacokinetic parameters of these drugs that work well on, they're drugs that are very fat-soluble, with large volumes of distribution, and lipid sinks. So it almost forms like a mycel, right? So it traps it in the middle. But remember that on cardiac toxicity or uh, cardiac substrates, free fatty acids, intralipid, 
as a preferred substrate. So there's some thinking that you're giving the heart what it needs, what it wants, what it normally wants. So you're providing this as well. And then it also increases calcium, right, intracellularly. And then there's other things with these carnitine-dependent mitocardial lipid transport and increasing ATP. So it probably the reality is it's multifold, but I think a big portion of it is this lipid sink by just looking at the drugs that it seems to work well in. So how do you give it? And it's good because you have Dr. Suchard here, but if you have places that don't have a, a, a toxicologist, your pharmacist is probably not going to release it to you or going to fight you on it, although I think more and more pharmacists are learning about it. Because you give this IV push. So rather than hang it up like you do normally over eight hours to give the person some calories, this is 1.5 mil per kilo, so about 100 cc's for the average person, and you give it as a slow IV push. And then you can repeat bolus it in three to five minutes. And then you put them on a continuous infusion of 0.5 mil per kilo per minute for a maximum total dose, including those boluses, of 8 mils per kilo. It seems to be well tolerated, this dose. Uh, my colleague, Michael Levine, up at USC, still works. He works uh, a couple of weekends out at Phoenix where Dr. Shushard did his training. And he said they've had a couple of cases of pancreatitis that they are going to publish that they think are from the intralipid. The other thing is you worry about, can this get into the pulmonary, you know, uh, vessels and cause, you know, it, it just doesn't seem, to, it seems to be pretty well tolerated. But when do you use it? Oh, those are the questions. Uh, so when do you use it? Right now, this is pretty much right before you call in the code. It's moving up in the pathway, but if we start seeing some of this adverse event stuff coming out, it's probably going to fall back down. But for, for you guys, I would not grab this early. Uh, if someone's going to die, I would, I would use it for sure. But I would just reflect that in my chart saying, hey, I know this is a newer therapy. I know that, you know, but this person's going to die. I think it's worth a shot. So I would use it for a bad calcium channel blocker, <laughs> bad beta blocker, bad tricyclic that is not... Uh, if someone came down from, you know, one of the... Uh, uh, outpatient suites, or every once in a while in, Cal in UCSD, we used to get them uh, uh, from La Jolla. They do uh, outpatient like breast augmentation, and they just give them tons and tons of bupivacaine to do them locally. And every once in a while, they usually came in seizing, but they'd use so much bupivacaine that they would start seizing doing these procedures. But if they had cardiovascular uh, effects from that, I would definitely use it in that scenario. So I don't know what, what Dr. Suchard said. I would just echo the same thing. This is lipid rescue. Yeah, that's so a good way to. Doing very poorly, which means you're always going to be walking this fine line between, am I waiting too long to use it versus how sick they are? What I have seen happen a few times is somebody hears drug X is the antidote for poisoning Y, so I will use drug X because the patient was exposed to Y. So a patient will come in after a tricyclic and they said, oh, I gave bicarb. I'll say, okay, well, how long is the QRS? 92 milliseconds. Well, why did you give the bicarb? Because you get bicarb in tricyclics. It's the same sort of a thing. The patient has to be very sick. You need to try the more standard measures of IV fluids, atropine, pressors, uh, glucagon. But if you're finding that those aren't working, you should very quickly get to the point where you're saying, am I going to be using lipid rescue? like five, ten minutes into the resuscitation rather than waiting five, ten minutes before the patient's converted down. Excellent. Thank you. So I was asked to put a little post-questions on here. So sulfonylureas are A, potassium blockers.
B, sodium blockers. C, calcium blockers. Or D, ice blockers. Okay. Next one, hydroxycobalamin causes methemoglobinemia, interferes with some lab tests, can only be given IM, or is, is contraindicated if on multivitamins. And finally, interlipid should be given for all poisonings, not needed as in if in as if propofol, if on propofol, I should say, if intubated, if periarrest from poisoning, or only for nutrition. All right, so you know there are of course some other newer antidotes. I tried to target the ones that I think, as an emergency, I'm an emergency physician. I know exactly what you guys are going to be seeing and what you need to know for practice and the board. So that's what I tried to do here. Hopefully, you know, again, mortality is always hard for us as toxicologists show, but morbidity definitely, I think, as toxicologists, we absolutely decrease morbidity, length of hospital stay, uh, resource utilization, all this other stuff. However, these agents should not replace standard supportive therapy, and this happens every once in a while. Like somebody will say, oh, well, I know, uh, let's say, octreotide. Oh, I went to a lecture, they told me octreotide and won't give glucose, right? And they'll say, oh, wait till the pharmacy comes and it'll be 15 minutes with someone hypoglycemic. So, of course, you can do the normal stuff, and then these are all just adjuncts to it, okay? All right, guys. Thank oh, yeah, question? Just a quick one. So with the hydroxycobalamin mm -hmm. manufacturer, um, it's just an ordinary you know, precursor vitamin. Yeah. What were they able to patent such that they could sell it for 900 bucks a pot? So, it's really the packaging. So there is nothing to stop us from using 50 100 milligram vials. I can do that. Now, you know, you'd say, well, I'm using that drug for an off-label use because the little vials are not. But it's just the ease of administration. No one's going to, so that's why they're trying to do all the stuff they're trying to do. Because antidotes, you don't make money in antidotes. You don't make money in antivenom. So the current antivenom Crofab is going to be stopped. They're going to stop making that. Once the newer antivenom is, there's a new one that's coming up from a place called Bioclone in Mexico because you don't make money. That's why Wythe got out of it. That was the old, old antivenom. That's why Black Widow antivenom is really going to be hard to get the Merck because there's another one that's being studied. So antidotes, there's no money in antidote. So no one's going to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to capture the other corner of the hydroxocobalamin market by marketing it. And you could put it in and say, hey, you know, I'm giving it for megavitamin doses and, you know, someone to use it. But I don't think that there's really not a market for it. But there's nothing to stop anybody from doing it. But it's the ease of administration, having five grams in a bottle. The more standard way that hydroxychloroquine you actually have pernicious anemia, you need five liters of it. So yeah, and the volume, exactly. Yeah, that's a good, thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. This is from the residence. It's suitable for framing. Oh, that's fantastic. And this is just for me. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Thanks. Pleasure, man. Yeah, thank you. I don't know if that's working or not. but uh, Here, why don't you, as I said, I'm in back. Carstairs, who's coming, is a Mac fanatic. Oh, really? You will not have these issues with uh, him. Do you guys recycle the cans? or? Uh, uh, yeah, you can just do it. You sure? Oh, okay, thanks. Thank you. It was a pleasure out. meeting you. Yeah, thanks.